0: Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode sixty nine of the National Street Law Podcast. Brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday morning. Monday morning.
1: Too. Monday. Wait, we don't we don't record this podcast on Mondays.
0: All right, I'm out of here. I'll check in with you tomorrow.
1: Oh, I know why we're having a Monday episode. Why is that? I finally saw the Black Panther. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is that what it is? And so now, you, now you're racing to to review it.
1: Well, you know, I I mean, I that or there's you know a, a few things happened on Friday. So
0: yeah, Friday was a bit packed, a little, Fra- little as, extra packed.
1: As I wrote on Twitter, Friday was quite a month.
0: It was that episode title. Episode title. Episode title. Right there. Uh, well, i Who are you?
1: I'm Steve Vladek, and it's not just because the Mets won again.
0: 12 and two
1: 12 and two uh, right. now we've, we've gotten a little bit of pushback for talking a little too much about the Mets on this podcast maybe we should talk more
0: what about other teams or about national security and I law. think
1: people want national security I, I just want to say right, to right. our listeners who think we're talking about the Mets too much keep in mind I am expecting to not be able to talk about the Mets <laughs> more and more as the season goes on
0: and I'm sparing uh, everyone from a lot of San Antonio Spurs discussion because things are not so great in Spurs land yeah how was game one? I don't know, and neither does, Kawhi Leonard doesn't know either, cause Oh, he wasn't even there. Oh. Yeah, we'll oh. get to that later.
1: Wow, that's some shade being dropped. All right, yep. so um, that's really not why we're sitting down on Monday morning to record the podcast, and indeed our travel schedules are not why we're sitting down. We're sitting down on Monday morning because, you know, Friday around about 6 p.m., we had had quite a day of developments in Trumplandia, and we're like, okay, that was quite a day, that was like a week's worth of news, and then Friday night happened.
0: So I was on a flight uh, coming back from your alma mater. Ah, not not your undergrad alma mater. I know how you love. I'm sure Amherst is first in your heart. But I was coming from your law school. I was out at Yale. yet. Bula bula. It was it was a really great experience. And if any of those uh, students who I met there are listening, uh, thanks for being listeners. You guys are great. Um, I got on the plane and I almost sent you a note saying, like, I hope this isn't going to be one of those deals where I land in Austin <laughs> and I find a message from you or Ben Wittis saying, hey, Emergency, podcast. Do emergency <laughs> podcast. And uh, of course, I, I open up the, the, the Twitter when I get to the ground. And of course, it's blowing up with news that we are blowing up stuff in Syria. So we are going to do a deep dive. Today. Deep dive. Deep dive. Um, we're going to go into the international law aspects and then we'll go into the U.S. domestic law aspects of the Syria chemical weapons strike.
1: And there's a lot to say.
0: There is a lot to say. So we're going to really go deep on that. And then- uh,
1: We're going to do a little bit of Trump-landia. Yeah. Right? What, what
0: have we got? We've got? Maybe we'll note the OIG report on Andy McKay. So I think
1: we got to talk a little bit about the OIG report that came out on Friday and how it really screws up everyone's narrative, right? Especially <laughs> President Trump's.
0: There's some, there's some comedy gold there.
1: Um, I do want to talk a bit about the fascinating litigation that has ensued in light of last Monday's searches of Michael Cohen's you know, property and premises. Um, There's a hearing, I believe, as we speak this morning before Judge Kimba Wood Mm -hmm. in the Southern District on efforts by Cohen's lawyers and, as of last night, Lawyers representing President Trump. Um, are, there, are there some? Oh, my gosh, there <laughs> are. Um, to try to sort of prevent the government. So they actually want to stop the government from looking at any of the stuff that was seized in the, the first same. place. We'll
0: look first, and we'll, we'll pass it through. And,
1: like, that's a subpoena, not a warrant. All right,
0: so we will, uh, we'll get into all that
1: stuff. There's also a little bit of stuff to say about developments in the um, effort on Capitol Hill to protect Mueller through some kind of legislation. Um, I actually think we have... Nothing to say, this in this episode at least, about Guantanamo, the military commissions, or Doe versus Mattis.
0: At some point before we stop recording, we'll glance online to make sure nothing crazy yeah, has know. happened. But we have we have almost nothing on those two uh, chestnuts. But
1: we do have our long overdue review of The Black Panther.
0: Oh boy, I'm excited about that. Although I honestly, honestly don't remember quite as many of the points as I uh, may have made earlier.
1: Uh, okay, and then uh, if time permits, and I suspect it won't, you know, I will wax on philosophic about the Mets' 12 and 2 start. That's fantastic. All and, right. and also my my unbridled joy in the fact that the Washington Capitals once again have reached the playoffs and are you know reaching for the the choke pills.
0: Is that the uh, is that the NHL?
1: That is the NHL. That was a hockey reference. I, can,
0: I confess to not being well informed on that subject. Uh,
1: well, then, then I'll dominate that conversation.
0: Which, <laughs> or maybe it should be the main focus because you know. That's kind of our theme. We're not that well informed, but...
1: You know what we actually do know a little bit about, though. Despite does Twitter, uh, 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 my Twitter trolls to the contrary, uh, notwithstanding.
0: You get some good trolls. I don't get nearly the trolls you get. I am a
1: joke of a professor. I am a moron. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't read.
0: Oh, that's harsh.
1: Um, you know, some of it's true. All right, so Syria.
0: <laughs> we won't specify which one. All right, let's talk about Syria. Our main event today is to do a deep dive on the legal architecture of the U.S., French, and British airstrikes that were responses to the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons. We're going to talk first about international law. Um, Steve, we, we talk uh, under the heading of UN Charter. We talk under the heading of USAD Bellum. Maybe we should begin with a quick overview. Yeah. So, the category of international law we're talking about here is the, uh, the legal framework that attempts to constrain the ability of, of sovereign states to resort to armed force uh, in international affairs. It's a topic that, you know, prior to the 20th century was generally described under the heading of. Use ad bellum. This is the, the law of resorting to force or going to war.
1: And to, in contrast to use in bella, which is the rules that apply once you actually are in combat.
0: Exactly. So just just use ad bellum here. Or UN Charter Law, though, is what we really ought to call it. Because since uh, the late 1940s, we've had this gigantic multilateral treaty, the UN Charter, to which the United States absolutely is a party. And Article Four of the treaty uh, is famous for expressly forbidding the use or threat to use force in international affairs. Um, so that's the baseline is you're not supposed to do it, but from the beginning it's been well established that there are certain exceptions uh, that the charter itself recognizes. Uh, two are textually explicit, the other one is more logically uh, but uncontroversially uh, derived from the text. Let's we'll start with that one, the consent of the state against whom you otherwise <laughs> seem to be using force. So if if uh, if United States tells Canada that they may, with the U.S. government's permission, uh, intervene uh, militarily in some. send fashion. the Mounties. They, they send the Mounties in. Uh, although I guess the, the Mounties are not the military. Not military. No, no, no. Yet. I know. Yeah,
1: yeah. Before our before our Canadian <laughs> listeners send us nasty, angry tweets. Well, they already will because we, we already mocked. We already mocked
0: hockey. Uh, well, I wouldn't. You you were to that I just was expressing ignorance without judgment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, wait, that is a good episode title. Expressing. Ignorance without expressive ignorance without judgment. Oh, that
0: is good. Okay, let's let's remember that. All right, so uh, the consent of the state, who would otherwise have an Article Two Four objection, is widely recognized. I, I suppose there's some who quibble, but um, there there's general consensus that consent is okay. Now, obviously, the Assad regime has not consented to using force. In Syria, and notably, and this is despair's emphasis, the United States hasn't recognized any other governing authority as the government of Syria. Syria, it still treats Assad as the government. Um, it's interesting to ponder, Steve. You know, what if they switch that? We saw that move, for example, early on in Libya in 2011. Yep. The French, in particular, made a really early move to say they were not recognizing the regime under Qaddafi and Tripoli, but instead were recognizing the Benghazi revolutionary right. government.
1: Right. Um, there's, no, there's none of that here like the SDF.
0: Right. Uh, it, is a, it is a quick pathway, if you're diplomatically bold enough to do it, to really shake up the, uh, the applicability of the Article 2.4 objection. But no one's made that move here. So we move on to the two express exceptions. You can get a U.N. Security Council resolution under Chapter 7, expressly authorizing force, except you can't here. Steve, why can't they get the Security Council to do anything uh, critical of the Assad regime?
1: There's a country on the Security Council with a permanent veto. I I think it rhymes with Prussia.
0: (laughs) That's a good one. Yes, so of course... Which
1: which has a veto and and will always use it.
0: uh, Prussia? No. (laughs) So the Russians have one (laughs) here. All right, so there's not going to be a U.N. Security Council resolution under Chapter 7, so we set that aside. Last but not least, uh, the Article 51 self-defense in the event of armed attack. Uh, States may use force in individual or collective self-defense. So some might say, Steve, that, uh, well, hold on, isn't the the thrust of the, uh, the Allied action here to defend all those civilians who were harmed by chemical weapons? Yes, but it doesn't. It, no one's arguing, at least I, I don't think anyone's plausibly arguing that that alone right. directly triggers Article 51 self-defense because the civilians are not themselves a state. Right. Now, so so
1: so it's not like it's not like the Syrian government is attacking, say, the Turkish government, and we are coming to the defense of the Turkish government. That would be a different fact pattern.
0: Right. And so one might say, well, that seems morally obtuse in sort of privileging states over non-state groups, but it, it's what the charter says, and it's the framework that states came up with in the charter system. So none of the none of the usual suspects are clearly applicable here, or I think even very plausibly applicable. Um, and that leads us then to the subject of, what other kind of arguments are there? And obviously, one of the arguments would be, well, it's, it's illegal. Well, what, let's let's run through the other possibilities. Um, some listeners might be wondering, well, what about that unwilling-unable test? We, mm. see, we hear a lot about that in the drone strike context. Um, what Where does that fit in? Now, first of all, it must always be said, this is controversial, whether unwilling or unable is a legitimate part of the legal framework. I think it is. Some people don't. Um, it doesn't really fit here for the obvious reason that unwilling and unable is a standard that's either understood either understood as an extension of Article 51 self-defense that explains why you are taking action that could be described as impacting a host state, who's not the party that attacked you, um, that's the usual way of framing right. it. I actually kind of prefer an approach that understands it to be a feature of co- consent, that's a waiver of consent if you can't effectively ex- effectuate it.
1: Right. So, so I think, I mean, correct me if you disagree with this, but I think, right, an unwilling and unable argument would be much more applicable here if we were bombing ISIS in Syria. Exactly. Right? And, and That's
0: exactly our argument, in right, fact, for bombing ISIS in Syria. Right, is
1: that is that the Syrian regime is unwilling and unable, right? right. So, so wholly apart from how well that argument applies to that fact pattern, i.e., bombing ISIS in Syria, right? And when in those parts of the country that the Syrian government does not control, that's not this. I mean, we bombed Damascus.
0: Exactly. So it's not a sort of a third-party scenario. So it's just not a a fit. Um, Now, we mentioned earlier sort of pre-UN charter law, the old USAD bellum. And under the old, old USAD bellum, uh, (laughs) there was a concept called reprisal. Reprisal uh, was using force in this context, an armed reprisal, um, is using force in response to an illegality or violation of international law by the other side. Um, the fundamental point here is that no one maintains that reprisals survive creation of the UN charter system. It's, it's not one of the understood exceptions. It's generally been understood, including by the U.S. government, that reprisals are a defunct feature of the law and that rather the whole point of Article 2 4 was to take armed force or the use of force off the table as a way of handling most international disputes. Um, all that said, I think it's pretty fair descriptively to say that, at least for the Trump administration, the justifications as a policy matter that have been offered, hey, uh, Assad used chemical weapons and right. all uh, all these principles of law governing WMDs—they need to be punished for it. Yeah, it's—it's it's pretty much describing the concept of reprisal. It's just that that's not a legitimate exception under the architecture. Right.
1: If, we, if this were hundred years ago, we'd have it would be this. Well, exactly. We wouldn't be here. We would. There'd be no podcast. Right.
0: Well, good point. Well, yeah. What would be the equivalent? <laughs>
1: uh, two, two guys in a coffee shop. Two guys in a coffee shop with like three people listening to them. <laughs> just, hey, like the just like the podcast. <laughs> I've got
0: coffee. There's no one listening. Um, okay, what does that leave? It leaves the argument that the UK government has advanced, humanitarian intervention. Now, the humanitarian intervention idea has been out there a long time as, a, as a, a policy argument. Certainly, it's, of course, legitimate to argue that the Security Council should authorize intervention for humanitarian intervention grounds. No one would deny that. What we're talking about here is the much more controversial invocation of it as an uh, emergent exception to the UN Charter system. So question, and this is what the UK government has expressly argued, and only the UK government between the French and the Americans in the UK, only the British have come out and made a claim. So question one, is there actually a good case for there being such an exception? Question two, if there is, how does it work and, and, and is it met in this particular fact pattern? So Steve, maybe we should talk first about whether there is such an exception. Uh, the text of the charter doesn't have any reference to it, the the drafting history, the the Trevor there's there's no real basis for inferring from the text or the drafting history that there's a humanitarian exception. What does that leave? Well, it leaves the possibility of subsequent state practice mm-hmm. um, opening up a, a, can we say, interpretation, that's a bit of a stretch, but an interpretation of the charter. Uh, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, the VCLT, that's traditionally looked to, widely accepted as, as a common source for thinking about how do you go about treaty interpretation. It does say in its uh, Article 31, which is the general rule on interpretation, the Vienna Convention says when interpreting a treaty, you you shall interpret them in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning of the text, bearing in mind the object and purpose of the treaty. But then it goes on to say you shall consider, among other things, any subsequent practice in the application of the treaty, in close quote, "insofar, insofar as, quote, This establishes the agreement of the parties regarding its interpretation. So yes, there is a widely accepted principle that you can look at subsequent state practice if that practice shows that the parties are interpreting in agreement, the parties are interpreting the treaty in a certain way. So could you use that argument here? Do we have
1: that kind of subsequent practice? Eh. What do you think, Steve? I mean, the problem is is that I think the the practice is uneven, right? And one of the problems with this whole sort of framing of humanitarian intervention is it's a very subjective assessment of what is humanitarian. I mean, we might have different ideas. This this is why I think there's so much discomfort, right, with theories of uses of force that are predicated on relatively collective judgments about what is and what is not worth intervention. And you're making that point generally, right? Not not as applied to
0: this scenario, which seems like a... Pretty good case. For oh no,
1: no, listen. There's no question, right? That that using, you know, use Kogan co- violations of these clearly established norms of international law using chemical weapons against your own population, right? Is about as compelling a case for humanitarian intervention. You're saying, but how do we draw the line in exactly. harder cases? Yeah. That's the question.
0: Well, and and we have a we have a paucity. Of, can I use that word? Paucity. Yes, state practice here. Right. Subsequent state practice. I think if we go looking for good examples, you know, many people will say, "Well, look, Kosovo, the U.S. and NATO air intervention in Kosovo was humanitarian intervention." Right. Um, it's interesting though, because what what the VCLT requires is the subsequent Vietnam's state Convention practice. Not the law of treaties. Yes, subsequent state practice that reflects agreement among the parties and the the united states and and nato argued at the time that that intervention was legitimate morally or policy-wise but they didn't argue it was lawful as such in right. fact it was widely defended by this this phrase legitimate even if unlawful right
1: which which by the way is is its own problematic cup of tea right i mean the you know We can. I can accept that there are different moral and legal justifications, but legitimate does even if you accept moral legitimacy, that does not of itself breed
0: legality. Well, right. So, look, I think that this is a form. It's it's rather the same idea as civil disobedience. It's it's statecraft civil disobedience, where, you know, and and to put it down to the individual level, you see this commonly. Somebody might speed because there's an emergency, and and they blatantly blow past the speed limit, right. but there was a good policy
1: and moral justification right. for so, it. Right, so if they get pulled over, right, they're not going to say, officer, I didn't break the law. They're going to say, I'm, my, my wife's pregnant, right. I'm getting her to the hospital. Some things are more important than a, than a ticket. Right, exactly.
0: That's exactly right. And I think that was the view about the of intervention. Yeah. And, and to be clear, that could be and, and arguably is what the U.S. position is. The United States is not defending this on U.N. charter grounds. At all. At all, there's not even an argument being made.
1: I right. think it's more like Kosovo saying, "Right, we, we've just given this, this may, or may not be
0: lawful, but it's legitimate."
1: Right, we've just given this a much further area under international law than anything coming out of the administration thus far.
0: Absolutely, and so it makes it hard in that context to show that even if you had a lot of examples like Kosovo and now Syria, if you had a bunch of these examples, but they were all defended as maybe unlawful, but you got to do it. How is that? The, how is that the creation of practice that 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 in that, that in aggregate creates legality? Right. You, you have a hard time invoking Article 31 as, as showing that you've had agreement among the parties. And, of course, here you have some states, right. uh, some many of them quite vested interests, but some states uh, saying, look, we don't agree this is and lawful.
1: And listen, I mean, I mean, Russia obviously has a clear conflict of interest here. I mean, as do we, yeah. right? But it's not irrelevant that a, country, uh, that's, that a country of that significance, right, is saying, you know, this is not part of the state practice we accept. So I think we agree then that this
0: isn't the, the emergent, humanitarian intervention idea it's not that it's necessarily it's, it's clearly not yet to the point where it creates an actual recognized legal exception um, we do have to face this question and I think I think Monica Hakimi has done some really good writing on this what does it mean though if you begin to have a proliferation of examples of legitimate even if unlawful at a certain point then okay fine it's not lawful but everyone agrees it's legitimate and there are no consequences so what does it mean right. and I think that's a classic international law question, yeah, yeah. What,
1: what really turns on this? So so I think it would be, so I think if the, this is where I think we have to pivot to the domestic law question, right, because I think if the answer was that um, there was clear authority under domestic law, I think there'd probably be a lot less reason for angst or anguish about the international law question, right, because you could say, listen, countries are allowed, at least in certain circumstances, to depart from international law, right, So is there a good argument here that domestic law justifies, uh, authorizes the
0: strike? So before we let go of the international, I want to say two things about it. One is um, I I think that we have to bear in mind the two-edged sword Nature of the precedents yep. we create, and yep. so the the question here is: How might some other state, Russia, that were, like, Russia, China, someone else, later on use this same sort of argument in a we way that stuff. we would regret yeah. that they could, you know, invoke it? And then, secondly, let's just hypothesize, just to run through real quick: What would it look like in practice if the if the UK position actually was persuasive, and that we d- we agreed there was a humanitarian intervention exception? Because they actually offer a doctrinal test, which I think is fascinating. They say that there are three doctrinal conditions, three rules, if you will. Um, first, the first one's got a lot packed into it. You have to have convincing evidence. So so the degree of certainty is set at convincing, whatever that means, hmm. uh, generally accepted by the international community as a whole. Hmm, so like 100% or 98% or what? That's not clear. Uh, of what? Of extreme humanitarian distress on a large scale, requiring immediate and urgent relief. Um, is that met here? Their letter cites, two different things kind of intermixing. They cite the suffering from Syrian chemical weapon attacks, which of course is, that that is extreme humanitarian distress, and it does happen on a pretty large scale. Um, they intermix it with references to the larger suffering of the Syrian conflict, which I think is not on point for this inquiry, and in that they, they, if they were being really precise, shouldn't have included that in their argument. Um, a few states have uh, objected to this, uh, a few commentators have objected that this isn't very persuasive. I actually think if they'd just been more precise in saying, look, there is widespread suffering in Syria from the government's use of chemical weapons, and that's a separate thread of human suffering that is established and generally accepted to be problematic by the international community, I actually find that persuasive. Their second test then is, is it objectively clear that there's no practical alternative if lives are to be saved? Uh, the UK is taken a lot of heat for saying that, they're, that that's the case. Uh, I think that's a bit unfair. I think that as far as it goes, this second round of strikes and, and leveling up of the scale and sensitivity of it in the face of really strong Russian threats, you know, don't do this. We're going to shoot your stuff down. I um, actually think that it's pretty clear that there's no alternative and that this was a plausible step towards addressing the concern. Which leads to the last point, the Brits say, you got to have the response be necessary and proportionate to the goal. I think this was necessary and proportionate. So my view is, if this were actually the legal framework, they'd actually have made a great argument. It could have been more precise, but I think it's persuasive. Um, I just don't think that it actually represents a legal test that's actually been
1: established. And, And indeed, if it did, I think we would see more noise to that effect coming from either the Defense Department or the State Department. Yep. Although, of course, the State Department has a bit of a problem right now, which is there's no Secretary of State. There's, well, there are only three of the top ten positions are even filled, so uh, there's nobody home. And speaking of, by the way, it actually sounds like Pompeo might not get out of com- well, he, or he might get rejected in committee, which is going to put the did, would, did the chair or is the majority? So that I think there's there's at least one Republican on the committee who's voting against, and I think all the Dems have now said they're against. Interesting. So um, that's not wait. Fatal. So that creates a tie, right? I think, is I it th- a one-vote margin? It's a good question. I don't remember the answer to that. But so, yeah. so there's going to be interesting drama with the Pompeo nomination. So I think it's a mistake. I, I I've said before on the show. I think Pompeo
0: is going to be ultimately. A, it'll be good for the State Department to have someone who's got that tie to the White House, and it'll be better. You know, who who else do we think is going to be nominated?
1: Nikki Haley. Yeah, no, that'd be interesting, right? Cause here's so here's the problem. Like I, as 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 folks know, I'm a little more ambivalent than you are about Pompeo, but I also, sure. especially, was unimpressed with his performance at his confirmation hearing. I mean, there were a lot of questions that deserved answers that he basically hemmed and hawed his way through and out of.
0: I, I think you'll you'll I think that most plausible nominees, including Nikki Haley, are not going to give a lot of the answers that
1: that one would like to see them give just because of the confirmation context. But, but given where we are right now, no. I'm not sure. I'm not like I understand the politics of that. Yeah. I'm just not sure if that isn't, you know, deservedly fatal. Well, I would, I would certainly be very happy to see Nikki Haley as Secretary of State. I think that Pompeo,
0: again, he he does have the ability to be a Trump whisperer, yeah. in which it could be very good for the State <laughs> Department. <laughs> or not. <laughs> no, I, think it's, I think it's good. All, All right. right. So, so just to summarize, right, yeah. I
1: think you and I are both of the view that the best possible international law argument for the legality of the strikes is the one offered by the Brits. Yes, right? and kudos to them for offering it. Right, but that that is not really an accurate reflection of where the current prevailing understanding of how this works actually yeah. is. Yeah, it, what it really, its legal significance,
0: frankly, over time is if we get more incidents like this, this will be a key early articulation and, and of how we, it
1: ought to work. And if we come out and formally endorse this framework, I mean, I think that would have legs, too.
0: Eventually, we might see more. I actually would argue that we're going to see more of this in the future. And eventually, the British statement in this instance will become cited as basically it will be
1: criticized by many, but it'll be cited as the way to do it. Lots of scholarship for lots of stuff for international law scholars. That's right. right. So, So turning
0: to the domestic sphere.
1: So, the domestic law, so this is interesting. So, Secretary Mattis came right out Friday night in his 10 p.m. news conference. And just talked about article 2 and didn't even try to argue that there was some kind of statutory authority for the strikes which is actually rather different from the online commentary where most of the <laughs> defenders have I think wrongly but you know uh, if I
0: had if I had to bet between without even knowing what the topic yeah. was Jim mattis versus online commentary I'm totally going with Mattis every time.
1: I understand I just think it's interesting, right I mean the online commentary is presumably the Fox News Trump supporting base. Right, and they're making an argument that I think is almost specious. But all right, so let's walk through this. Yes, so let's talk AMF. So I think it's perfectly clear
0: and not within the realm of reasonable argument to claim that there's an AUMF justification for this. To claim that there's no AUMF justification for this, it's I, whatever I meant. I meant to criticize it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't diagram that sentence, but I can't tell you that there's no there's no plausible right. claim so, so that to the, the AUMFs extended this. So, so
1: let me play stupid internet troll. But Bobby, Obama used the AUMF to bomb Syria. To bomb. The Islamic State aha, of Syria. Let's explain why that matters. Because we're not bombing the Islamic State. We're so, bombing the government of Syria. Okay, so this is an important distinction that I think is lost on at least some people, right? The AUMF is not an authorization for the use of military force in Syria, right? It's an authorization for the use of military force against those nations, yeah. organizations, or persons who attacked us on 9-11. You and I have talked hundreds of times before. Well, this is episode 69, so 65 times before <laughs> um, about the interesting and not self-evident argument that the 2001 AUMF covers ISIS. We can bracket that here because even if it does, Which there's, it does. there's just there's <laughs> just no question that Assad did not attack us on 9-11, that his nation did not harbor those who attacked us on 9-11, that the 2001 AUMF doesn't cover the Syrian government, period. So the the, the best one could argue, I think the only plausible argument, would be to say that
0: once you are otherwise intermixed in the armed conflicts of the Iraq-Syria theater, that it carries with it the authority to use military force for a whole host of wide-ranging, you know, collateral matters, and that some way or somehow that the Assad regime's use of force, you know, and Use of chemical weapons exacerbates the situation in a way that's deleterious to our efforts to suppress the Islamic State, and therefore you can do what you want. But of course, by that logic, uh, certainly the AUMFs then become authority for regime change altogether. Right,
1: right. and indeed, I mean, that, now we're so far off what the AUMFs actually reasonably could be read to have authorized.
0: Right, you, you, you've gone down the slippery slope, and it also raises the question, what, what are you getting by right. citing the AUMF that you're not going to get from... The War Powers Resolution. Ooh, the War Powers oh, Resolution. Oh, I was oh, gonna go to Article, article two. two before we get to Article Two. Let's talk about right. the other
1: statute. that So, sits so I got super trolled all weekend. <laughs> um, so, so I I tweeted something Friday night about how whatever the author like very early on I tweeted like whatever the authorization is, the 2001 EOMF ain't it. Right, and then Congressman Ted Lieu picked that up and like tweeted it, and that brought out all. Oh, that of the brings trolls. out the fun. That brings out the fun. So, so everyone's like, you know, you moron, you know, have you never, have you never read the War Powers Resolution? Oh my God, so how embarrassing for you! I'm like, uh, <laughs> well, so let's talk up about- first. First, if you looked at my CV, you might notice the casebook I co authored that yeah, includes a maybe chapter out out on of the. Co-authored,
0: war- maybe you didn't uh, write that part of it. I, I'm
1: sure that's what that's how that, that that thought process went. Anyway,
0: let's do a, a quick primer on the war powers
1: okay resolution. so yeah. congress enacted the war powers resolution of 1973 it is a statute despite its name over president nixon's veto right it is enacted yeah. it is a yeah. valid public law um well it is a on the books public law yep. um and the war powers resolution is generally a procedural statute right. that requires the president to file reports to congress within 48 hours of the introduction of us armed forces into hostilities or situations in which hostilities may be reasonably imminent That report, in turn, triggers a 60-slash-90-day clock, um, at the end of which the president must remove those armed forces unless Congress has intervened with a specific authorization. Folks point to that structure as saying that, therefore, within those 60-slash-90 days, Congress has affirmatively authorized the use of force. I think that's not fair, right? Right. And, in
0: fact, there's a a very good reason to say you can't cite Right. as your affirmative authority for
1: being there for two months, the War Powers Resolution, indeed. because it also says what? It says, this can't be cited as authorization for the use of force. Right. So right? The Section draf- 8D, 50 U.S.C., Section
0: 1547D. So the drafters anticipated that the framework they created might be taken as an affirmative blessing to do whatever you want for two months. And it's not. Minutes.
1: So I think the best way to understand the War Powers Resolution is, once the clock expires, um, the War Powers Resolution does indeed affirmatively prohibit the unilateral use of armed forces in the situations the statute covers. And so if a president wants to flout that, you've got to steal seizures category three scenario. Whereas, in the 60- to 90-day period, I think what could fairly be said is the War Powers Resolution does not prohibit but does not authorize. Right. So rather than being a steel seizures Category
0: 1 scenario where the Congress is uh, pressing with the president, it's Category 2. It's Category
1: 2, which does not settle the legality. Right. It just
0: means you have to analyze it without citing the or- statute. Now, now I guess we should say there is, there is language in the War Powers Resolution that's sort of declaratory of the law as Congress in that year saw it. Uh, you know, I, my experience has been that most of us who work on these issues tend not to give a lot of weight to that one way or the other. Yeah, That's yeah. the view of that Congress about how to interpret the Constitution. But I, I
1: think putting it in Youngstown terms is really helpful, right, for our non-sort of law law, law lawyer listeners, right? The, the Youngstown steel seizure case from 1952 is the canonical Supreme Court separation of powers case where Justice Robert Jackson in his concurring opinion basically trifurcates the types of separation of powers disputes you can have. And I think, Bobby, you're exactly right. What the War Powers Resolution clarifies is that situations like Friday night are Youngstown Category 2 cases, right. where the president may have inherent power to use force, but where there is no affirmative authorization and no affirmative prohibition from Congress. So that brings us at last to Article 2. Indeed. And Article 2
0: is the part of the Constitution, of course, that vests the executive power in the presidency and has things in it like the commander-in-chief, Commander-in-Chief function yep. so let's do a little primer on article two uh, sort of Standalone presidential war powers and how it interacts with the fact that Article One gives the power to declare war to the Congress.
1: And not just the power to declare war. I mean, I think, you know. Oh, yeah, and the power, a whole host right. of. Raise countries. armies, yeah. call out the militia to, you know, execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrection, repel invasion. Right. All right. So um, let's start with what the Supreme Court has said, right, which is very little. Um, our favorite case. Our favorite case, The Prize Cases, which is actually five cases consolidated into one. This is an 1863. Supreme Court decision in the middle of the Civil War about the legality of the blockade that President Lincoln imposed at the outset of the war. And there's a discussion in the prize cases, especially at pages 668 to 670, if you have volume 68 of the U.S. reports sitting on your shelf at home. Right: It's right here. Uh, indeed. Um, where the court basically cements what I think is now a clear consensus view which is that Article 2 does confer upon the president at least a defensive war power where he can act to repel sudden attacks without waiting for affirmative congressional authorization. So I think there's no real debate that Article 2 at a minimum allows the president to use force without an act of Congress if it is clearly in self-defense. Right. And
0: there's there's evidence from the uh, convention itself. Madison talked about this, how, look, if there's an attack, this is not how he put it, but <laughs> dudes, if there's an attack, dudes. of course, we can't wait for Congress to assemble. President not only, as as the Price cases would later yeah. say,
1: the president not only has the authority to use But he's bound force. to act. He's duty bound. Right. I mean, that's you should, that passage from 66, 668 to 670 is worth reading in full. So, um... What that means in practice, right, is that, we've talked about this before, um, on the morning of December 7th, 1941, right, FDR could have shot down the Japanese planes at least somewhere along the way without an act of Congress. Exactly. So so there's no doubt that the Price Cases
0: recognizes a national self-defense doctrinal category where you don't have to have an act of Congress, but it also, in equally plain terms, Marks out the what we could call the offensive side of the dial or the spectrum and say that that belongs to Congress when, when it's not responding to an attack on the United States, then it's up to Congress to decide whether to unleash the
1: dogs of war, exactly. All right, so, um, Bobby, when Secretary Mattis spoke Friday night, he did not use the term self defense. No, that's right. And is there a self defense argument here setting that aside? I'm hard-pressed to see it, right? I mean, so the the cl- here's how the let me let me make what I think is the strongest case, right? The strongest case is a collective self-defense theory here that there was no imminent immediate direct threat to the United States or US persons or even US installations, right? from the use of chemical weapons, but that there was such a clear threat to humanity writ large that we are acting in collective self-defense. So collective self-defense is
0: clearly part of the international Article 51 self-defense framework. Is it also
1: coextensive in U.S. Article 2 domestic separation of powers law? So the Supreme Court's never said. Um, I'm skeptical, right? And I'm skeptical because the theory of the prize cases is that the Article 2 defense power is specifically meant to encompass situations in which there isn't a meaningful opportunity for the legislature to come on board. This doesn't strike me as right. one of those. No, because on that logic, let's say, you
0: know, Hitler, it's 1939. Hitler right. Hitler uh, invades Poland. Poland. Um, FDR could have at that point said, collective self-defense. Right. I don't need any approval from Congress. That We're seems- entering World War II. D- you know, I'm effectively declaring war Right, against- that seems too broad to me. Exactly. So, and I've never actually seen anybody really press the collective domestic self-defense theory. Uh, so, the, the more common thing is to say, well, it's – U.S. national self-defense. It's just that you have to look at it as anticipatory in the extreme, right? So one well, this the, is real extreme. The, yeah, exactly. No, this, this. I'm not saying this is a good example of that, but that's the only way you could kind of get around it. If you want to invoke the clearly recognized national self-defense category, you've got to really blur the line between offense and defense. Now we've seen these kinds of arguments before. This is one of the arguments that was central to the build-up to the invasion of Iraq in yep. 2003. The idea that although so, there there was statutory authorization. It, but I'm not. I'm talking about before know, that. So know, in the in the setting that aside, the Bush administration had advanced the argument that yes, Iraq had not at that point uh, used WMDs to attack the United States. It wasn't going to do it tomorrow, but the argument was that with WMDs in particular, you had to relax the time aperture, Mm -hmm. not only to have a little bit of anticipatory self-defense, but to have a lot of it, to have preemptive self-defense. You haven't seen that kind of argument being made here, because even though there are, in this case, we actually have chemical weapons, for sure, but... You haven't seen any claim that we've got to destroy this capacity now because later it'll be used against
1: the United right. States, right? Presumably because that that the, there's no factual predicate there. Like Syria exactly. doesn't actually have the offensive capability right. to deliver these weapons in a place that would actually directly affect us,
0: right? Exactly. So so we're not seeing any of that. So so the the kind of the classic mudding feature of anticipatory self-defense. That's not the issue here. There's a different issue here, and this is something that I think is best described as the uh, the threshold or below the level of warfare. Test. The argument is that some uses of the US military are sufficiently constrained in their nature, in their timing, in their purpose.
1: Uh, that they don't really rise to the price cases level of the war powers right. debate at all. So, I think my I've always felt about that argument which we've heard before, right? That that really is more of a political argument than a legal one, right? That it's sort of a we don't really need Congress's buy-in when it's this one-off or, you know, short-term truncated thing because it's not a massive commitment of resources, troops, personnel, et cetera, because it's not going to drag us into some kind of bigger, broader conflict. I don't know where that sort of comes in legally because I think what happened Friday night clearly is, right, an armed attack. Um, as an international law matter. And I don't know why this threshold as a U.S. constitutional matter would be higher. So I, I disagree to some extent in that I think it's it's certainly been
0: treated by the executive branch across well, sure. a long period of time as a legal doctrinal category in the elucidation of what Article 2 means in, in, in its clash with Article 1 in this area, where the idea is there's there's a term of art war, that, that that's the trigger, and that there are all sorts of things we have the military do that clearly don't count as war and don't lead us and shouldn't lead us to a discussion of does the president need approval from Congress so to do I, it? I,
1: I agree with that, but like uh, among all the things the military does that aren't war, I'm not sure a... Like massive airstrike in the heart of the capital of a sovereign nation is one of them. So let's let's map out the spectrum to tease out where does it start getting hard. Because I think we'd agree. Tell, tell me
0: if you agree with this. If uh, if President Trump decides to. Direct the Navy to you know send some
1: vessels on a port call in, in Singapore.
0: Right. Th- there's no need to find a. Firm oh wait. There's, there's a There's a
1: name, There's an acronym for that, right? Um, EON establishment of navigation, something like that. Uh, you talking about freedom of navigation? FON operations. Yes. So F-O-N. that's
0: okay. Let's move down the spectrum. Ah. So a peaceful port call at a right. friendly country. Fine. No one. No one questions. Even though it's the president telling the military overseas no, no. to do something. Um, if you it's step it up a bit and, and you have the Navy conduct a freedom of navigation, a, a FON or F-O-N operation through some part of the South China Sea right. or other that China's, you know, building the an The or, or something. Yeah, it's, so something like that where this is, this is different in kind because the risk of an incident is steps up a bit, yeah. in the diplomatic sensitivity. I think it's definitely within the commander in chief's power without approval from Congress to do those sorts of things, even though you're now getting a little closer to I, the, oh, I agree. the other end of the spectrum.
1: No, no freedom of yeah. navigation to me. Right. Also, and, and let's be clear, right, freedom of navigation has clear support in international law, right? So I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still mm-hmm. with you. OK, so
0: then what what else might be on the spectrum as we move closer towards whatever paradigm of yeah. conflict we would agree is like, look, that's war. Yeah. Um, uh, interventions uh, in the nature of peacekeeping operations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where, you know, it's the deployment to Haiti, for example, uh, those typically are not authorized by anything resembling an AUMF uh, hostage rescue or protection or evacuation of nationals in a hot setting. Um you begin to get trickier and trickier as you're getting closer to the risk of force involving our forces. Uh, and then finally,
1: you get to the stuff where we're using lethal force.
0: And that's where Direct, Directly
1: down. against a foreign sovereign. Exactly. Because right? I actually think there's a step before that where we're using lethal force where the target is not the foreign sovereign as such. Right, like a non-state actor. Exactly, exactly. Okay,
0: so the, the best prior example uh, you know, in recent years, Libya. Yeah. The, the Obama administration's massive
1: and sustained use of air power and lethal force. Which, by the way, was pretty controversial when it happened. Exactly. So, no, that's the whole point. And well, except that a lot of the folks who were screaming bloody murder back then are all of a sudden very quiet.
0: I I, I can't believe you're talking about <laughs> hypocrisy in Washington. I know, I'm, I'm
1: shocked. Who knew? Um, so, so in the Obama, but, well, I, like, can yeah. I say one thing, yeah. but also, but there's also hypocrisy among the trolls because there are all these people who are going after the folks like me, thinking that there's a real problem here, saying, "Where were you during you know with Libya?" I'm like, "We were criticizing it." Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I I definitely think your 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 mental happiness will be better if you. Don't look for consistency
0: amongst the the proletariat. I I I know I know I just I, <laughs> uh, I want to educate. It's part of the fun. I want to educate. Just yeah, it's true. But you know, the, half the trolls who even knows. I know. Yeah, they're Russian bots. The kid. <laughs> the Russians. All right. So um, so with Libya, the Obama administration, um, there was an OLC, Office of Legal Counsel opinion, basically explaining internally the executive uh, branch's view about why was it okay to use that degree of air power against a foreign sovereign? As we noted earlier, the Qaddafi right. regime was still the sovereign as far as the U.S. was concerned. Yep. And the explanation offered in this memo was, look, we don't have boots on the ground We're in this in support of, you know, U.N. Security Council resolutions. It's limited in scope, purpose, and nature. And therefore, it just doesn't rise to the level of war. I would say that, you know... That was – for for those instances where we've had direct legal discussion of this theory of force below the threshold of war, yeah. that's probably the high watermark at, up to that point of – and I would say that was a much more extensive use of force than what we saw the other night. So it still is the high watermark claim of uh, unilateral executive power, ironically, under Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, this is an episode that partakes of that exact same rationale – and if you buy the prior rationale, then this is a lesser included case. Plenty of people, as you say, don't buy the
1: prior rationale. Because, because of its limitlessness, right? I mean, so my, you know, wholly apart from the moral justifications, right, I'm concerned about what happens if you set this precedent where, you know, all sort of modest uses of force fall below the threshold. Because the reality is, although I don't think this is going to happen here, it's not hard to see how a president who wanted to get us into a war with a particular country could basically force that country to attack us.
0: No, right, because you, you put, let's say we'd use manned aircraft and that's several right. of them got shot down and maybe there were Now you have POWs? No, yeah, the whole thing can escalate. Now, this is why the original theory of the force below the threshold of war, I think, puts so much emphasis on boots not being on the ground, because it makes it seem like that we can control whether it's going to scale up or not. But of course, that's a bit of an illusion. It also is kind of interesting that uh, the nature of force increasingly enables us to use standoff capabilities, right. Right. meaning we can inflict we can more and more. We can fire Tomahawk
1: yeah. missiles from the Mediterranean, from right. the Gulf, right? More
0: and more lethality without actually putting boots on the ground and insofar as that trend continues uh, which, you know, there are plenty of foreseeable conflict scenarios where you'd have to have boots on the ground, but we do have a lot more of it than we used to and, um, you know, advances in technology are going to make it more so. There is a question about whether the boots on the
1: ground test really makes sense for uh, advanced, automated uh, remote warfare. And I would say, and, and I think it's worth stressing. I mean, you know, Leaving aside that the president was one of the very people calling for congressional authorization right, for Syria last time around. Well, he also said, don't forewarn them of your <laughs> of your strike. Only a fool would do that. Yeah, the president, I think, did not have a good weekend on Twitter. There's a, twi- there's a tweet for that. There's a tweet for everything. Um, I do think, I mean, listen, it's worth stressing that we once again have a situation where the president was perfectly able to go to Congress if he wanted to, where I have no problem believing that especially this Congress— would have provided some kind of limited authorization for the purpose of destroying serious chemical weapons capabilities. That's an interesting proposition. I, would, I, I think it's possible they would have. It's not obvious to but me. But the they constraint would have. would have been political, not not time, right? What I'm trying to say oh, is yeah, sure. this is not a situation where you know the use of force was so justified by the circumstances that the president was not physically able to go to Congress. And I just yeah. get worried, you know, lots of noise from Congress over the weekend about how we support the strike, rah, 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 yeah. you know, good stuff. I think this is another troubling development in the sort of drift and abdication, sure. right, of congressional responsibility for war making. Well, here's, this is why I am, you know,
0: I may not like it, but I'm more comfortable with the existence of this legal doctrine because Congress has so predictably and consistently and, and quite knowingly abdicated its yeah. role here, because as as any political scientist could tell you, um, the the attractive position to be in is you're you're there to applaud and endorse or criticize as facts develop, and you're not bound by having committed to it on the front end.
1: Right. I mean, so so in the last Congress, not this Congress, in the last Congress when it was still President Obama and the House Republicans in charge, right? The the House Judiciary Committee convened this task force on executive overreach, um, the the premise of which was to sort of identify all the ways in which President Obama. Was you know running afoul of the Constitution? What what Senator Cotton called his anti-constitutional agenda. Um, and one of the remarkable things about the task force is that most of the hearings, the witnesses all basically said, "Yeah, Congress, it's your fault, yep. right?" Like you know. Presidents are going to grab power, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. It's your job institutionally to assert your prerogatives, to claim your authority, and to not just acquiesce in things the president does unilaterally because you politically agree with them.
0: Well, and there there are many of us who would say that uh, when it comes to foreign affairs and war powers... The design really was for the branches to be jealous of one another and right. to resist one another for these encroachments. Ambition should be made to be get ambition. That this is the model, and so it's not so much that you have to like it, but the, you can't necessarily say that no one, you know, no one ever intended for it to be this way. The intention was for the branches to clash,
1: right? And so I guess my my sort of and bottom line takeaway is what happened Friday night. I think probably wasn't legal as a matter of domestic law, but it also wasn't unprecedented.
0: And so I, I think this is where we slightly disagree. I say it was within the parameters of what has, through practice and precedent, become part of the Article Two powers. Um, rather, rather
1: unfortunately, perhaps. I you think, so one 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 solid prior example is enough to make it practice. Well, to, it's not just one. Uh, what what other, I mean other what you, you put Kosovo on the same bracket as Libya? Well. Would, so was there – there
0: was no – and not only was there not authorization for the Kosovo air campaign, which was, again, much more extensive than this, but in fact there was a vote and they, they tried – they they voted yeah. on it. They didn't get it. And by steel seizures rationale, that put it in an Article uh, Category Three. Right? I don't know
1: because you could argue that the Kosovo airstrikes, unlike what happened on Friday, right, was was consistent with pursuant to various international agreements that we had implemented well, by treaty by statute. But which ones? I mean, it was it was. We just said earlier it was contrary to the UN Charter. yeah, legit open.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I know. So I don't think I think there's there's a, for better or worse ample
1: precedent. I'm not sure it's actually worse. Yeah, I'm not sure ample there's some precedent.
0: I think we can agree that there's yeah, it's, it's certainly not novel.
1: Right, right. Friday right, Friday was not the first time we've seen this theory. But, yeah. you know, what Secretary Mattis actually said was, you know, we can use our powers under Article 2 whenever it's in the national interest. Right.
0: No, I look and I think that the obvious problem and this we agree on,
1: there's a huge line-drawing problem once you've opened up this can of worms. Um, but which, as which say, is all the more reason why I'm not comfortable looking at even uh, even three or four examples as proof that this is legal, as opposed to, again, per our discussion of international law, proof that that is something countries are doing for moral legitimacy purposes, but perhaps not for legality purposes. And for my part, I think
0: that the practice of in the press right. over time has has shifted things. Pretty definitively,
1: with zero sign, Congress is going to step up to it. But that doesn't mean we should be happy about so, it. So, so isn't it interesting, right? How folks who tend to be—I'm not—I don't. This is not directed to you. This is directed to other commentators, yeah, right? Yeah. How folks who tend to be much more sort of originalist, right, textualist. People. You've got all kinds of people on the left who are never really originalist textualists,
0: but who, when it comes to the declare war powers, it's all about what the founding fathers intended. But, but the other way around, intended. with the righties? No, it's a, it's a mirror image deal. It's the same point we keep making, which is that a lot of people. You know, I think you and I, being academics, we're, we're really into the doctrines yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, the, as uh, I think Jack has had said, said on Jack Goldsmith said on Twitter recently. You know, it, it's funny how you suddenly have people who are. I can't remember which way he was running the argument, but it was your point that some people are suddenly living constitutionalists uh, when it comes to war yeah. powers who wouldn't be in other settings, and there are people who are formalist. I think that was the point he was yeah. making. A lot of people are highly formalist and textualist on war powers who would never be that way with the due process clause.
1: Yeah. I mean, it cuts both ways, right? And I think Kurt Bradley said the same thing. So, so... Oh, yeah. You know, that's what I was thinking of. Kurt has but, said But that. here's the thing, though, right? Like, I guess... So I, as you know, and I said this before, ascribe the, the only part of Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence that I deeply agree with right, is his argument for formalism versus functionalism and separation of powers. And Justice Kennedy's argument for formalism versus functionalism is context specific. right? He's, his point is, you can be a formalist for some purposes and a functionalist for others if you have a coherent explanation for why yeah. which one's which.
0: And logically, that actually clearly is correct as a matter of abstract logic. And I think it actually does apply here the entire a revolution in foreign relations law that took place across the early it's part of the twentieth century. It's hyperfunctionalist. It's hyperfunctionalist. It's it's a feature of the rise of American power and yep. a role in the world, yep. changing technology and changing geostrategic context. Yeah, I mean, the Soviets I, I, in particular. I wrote
1: a piece a couple of years ago that no one I think has ever read um, about sort of how. It was basically the, um, Ingrid Wirth, right, had written mm-hmm. this fantastic article about foreign affairs originalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I basically said, you know, this is really interesting stuff, yay academics. Um, originalism has no valence in foreign affairs because all of the modern doctrine is functionalist, right, because Youngstown is functionalist, because, you know, all of these cases are functional accommodations reflecting the rise of, of executive power mm-hmm. and the general abdication by the, by the legislature.
0: Yeah, yep. All right. Yay.
1: Okay. So we used most of our
0: time on that. We got to hit some of these uh, Trumplandia topics. So let's let's so
1: be real brief on some Friday, of them. Well, we, 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 we just did Friday night. We still have to do Friday <laughs> yeah, afternoon. Right. We haven't done Friday afternoon. Okay. Roll back in time. All right. So three things happen, or three things have happened in Trumplandia that I think are worth talking about, and none of them are the Comey interview. Um, <laughs> right. By so, the way, are you going to read the book? No. Not going to read it. No. Because so much, it's going to be whatever's interesting will be
0: massively put out there in the media anywhere. I think, as
1: you know, I find Comey's, um, I, what's my, I, I, I don't distrust him, right? That is to say, I believe he is telling the truth about the things he yeah. is recounting in the book. I find his sort of, you know, I, I am above, you know, I am ethically superior act a little bit um, tired. Um, and so I'm I'm, I'm. I'm. I can think of better things to do with my time than read all about James Comey, the great ethicist. Oh,
0: all right, all but right. Cla-
1: I, I, still think he showed some pretty darn piss poor judgment, even if he's not dishonest.
0: Even, yeah, look, even very honest and very moral
1: and upright people can make mistakes. Uh, and 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 there's so little, from my sense of of what. I, so mind you, this is from secondhand accounts. But my sense is there's so little sort of self reflection on his own. Mistakes, right? Where that's he, why you got
0: to read the book. I'm curious to see okay. how much self-reflection well, might be in there. Maybe I will. All right. Anyway,
1: um, so Friday afternoon we had the the release of the uh, Inspector General report on Andy McCabe. This is the fired deputy, former deputy director right. of the FBI. So this is interesting, right? Yes. Because so the main the main issue here there there are any number of
0: issues people may want to talk about with McCabe. This report was about whether and to what extent he had authorized uh, people from his office to talk to the media. About uh, was it the, the Hillary investigation? Right. In and ways,
1: by the way, in ways that were damaging to Hillary and good for Trump. I mean, I think this right. just gets lost in the in right, President right. Trump's Twitter story. I
0: right. said so Trump would have liked these leaks. Right. And then and then whether Andy McCabe was forthright in talking to Director yeah. Comey and, and to when he, when he wanted to find out, did you authorize these communications? Right. And
1: so the report concludes that there were at least I think four instances where McCabe showed a lack of candor in both. Um, discussions with Comey and in discussions with investigators. Yeah, it comes down pretty hard on him. Comes for pretty for hard. Not now,
0: being honest with Comey.
1: Listen, I think I think reasonable folks can debate whether those four episodes in any other context would have been sufficient to justify his termination. Right. I think there's still a pretty plausible claim as he himself has leveled that his termination was pretextual and was not actually sure. based on no, this. Sure, that,
0: no, that's that's pretty obvious, right?
1: Um. But what's clear about the report, so this is why I find the report so interesting. The report completely wrong-foots the president and his supporters, because the report does two things. One, it paints McCabe's dishonesty as being a dishonesty that was good for Trump and bad for Hillary. And two, in a credibility contest between Comey and McCabe, the report comes down entirely with Comey. And so, in theory, you're right. So, in theory, this should be a real
0: problem for for the president and his supporters on this point. But the president, in a, in a sort of a, what I can only describe as sort of this postmodernist sort of, you know, post truth, <laughs> uh, just complete blowing past that, very effectively just controls Lies. the narrative by tweeting out that everyone's you know, lying. Th- that it's all just vindicating. It, I think he said McCabe is Comey, they're yes. one and the same. Yes. And, and, and what you just said doesn't really matter Which is in hu- the face of right. this hurricane force wind of a different narrative. Which is
1: hilarious because the two takeaways I have from the OIG report are, you know, McCabe probably acted inappropriately, leave for another time, whether it was termination-worthy. Yeah. And Comey, once again, comes out like a totally honest broker. Yep. No, and and so it ought to be reinforcing Comey,
0: but instead it it just gets cited. Hey, the OIG report condemns them both.
1: By the way, speaking of false narratives, sorry, I just want to throw this out there. Did you see the picture that Sarah Sanders tweeted on Uh, Saturday? I
0: know. So the press
1: (laughs) press secretary, so you you know the famous Obama situation room picture Uh from the night of the Osama Uh bin Laden raid? Was um, so oh, this a
0: picture where, like, Don McGahn's looking the other way?
1: No, no, there was a John Kelly picture that Trump tweeted out that he then deleted with John Kelly facepalming um, in the background. <laughs> but no, no, so Sarah Sanders, this, is, this to me summarizes the Trump administration in a perfect nutshell. On Saturday, Sarah Sanders tweets out this picture that she says is the big meeting to discuss the serious strikes from Friday night, right? Okay. There's one small, well, there are two problems. Problem number one, Mike Pence is in the picture. Well, he wasn't in town. He was in Peru. Yes. Right? So that picture is not, in fact, from any meeting that took place on Friday. It was a Google Hangout. Right? (laughs) Um, But problem number two, by all accounts, at the time that some of the major decisions were made on the Syria stuff, Trump was on the phone with Michael Cohen. Um, So, you know, come on, people. Well, Do better. I can't say I'm surprised. No. All right. But speaking of Michael Cohen— Right. Yes. So this is where I think we're going to have an interesting week, um, or one of the places where we're going to have an interesting week. So, right. um, we talked on last week's episode about the you know dramatic revelation, these searches that took place on Monday, and the you know massive contretemps over the violation of the attorney-client privilege, which we sort of did not think was that big a deal, right?
0: Yeah, I think we had a little disagreement between us regarding the extent to which there might indeed be attorney-client client privilege concerns, but we agreed that there's a process that was being followed
1: in the ordinary course of business here. So there's now been right this massive back and forth between uh, Michael Cohen, as of last night, lawyers for President Trump, and the U.S. Attorney's Office before Judge Wood. Um, I would really encourage folks – I've tweeted this – I would really encourage folks to read – the 23-page brief the U.S. Attorney's Office filed on Friday, which I think is a remarkably interesting public document, and it was written for a public audience. It is not just a legal response to Cohen's argument. So Cohen's basic argument is that um, he should be entitled to review all the documents before the government does, and that he should be entitled to assert privilege claims before the government even sees anything. Sort
0: of as if it was a document request in civil litigation. Like a subpoena. He a Vaughn index saying, "I've withheld the following categories of documents. Exactly. Now you may have the rest."
1: And the whole and one of the things that the government's brief sets out is why they didn't go for a subpoena, why they actually have thought about this carefully, and opted for a search warrant because they were, you know, Cohen apparently has been under investigation for quite a while. Um, They actually don't think hardly any of the stuff they seized is privileged because Cohen only has one client, (laughs) Um, right? right? Cohen has asserted a relationship with the firm in whose offices he was you know, renting space that it turns out is not true, right? They actually were not part of There was right. no partnership agreement. Does it boil down to suggesting there's a risk of destruction of yes. evidence? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they don't before. literally say that, yeah. but they all but say that. Right.
0: And so well, I mean, there is a reason why when, when ordinary search warrants are being executed, you uh, don't provide you're notice. doing that and you don't provide us and you don't ask the party whose offices you're going into, lawyer or not lawyer, okay, you produce what what you think is responsive to the search warrant. You do it yourself.
1: Yep. So listen, I mean, I think the, the reality is that I, I have to sort of two quick observations, because I know We're we're low pressure time. Uh, Quick observation number one, um, they're not going to get this relief, right? Judge Wood is not going to say, sure, (laughs) you can read everything first. No, no. They might get uh, an order saying you're entitled to copies of everything so that if you have a privilege claim, you can assert it. Exactly. And you guys can both come back. And by the way, that actually makes a lot of sense. To me as well, right? Um, But the second thing I was going to say is, man, Cohen and now Trump as of last night are fighting this awfully hard. Oh, right? you think that that reveals that uh, something's I mean, out there? Listen, I, if I were a member of a jury, no. right. You can't look at actions people take to assert their rights as proof of their guilt. But as a matter of just sort of pure public opinion, this is a whole lot of noise and effort to be expending if you don't think that the government actually found anything. Well, that there's two possibilities there, yep. right? I, I'm sure there's a risk they're going to find all kinds
0: of crazy, interesting things. About Cohen. but About Cohen, about the Trump business, whether any of it's actually, actionably legal problems as opposed to embarrassments, et cetera. Harder to say. Yep. Um, all right. Well, that, so so we'll be talking about that one again. I was right? gonna
1: say by the time of our next episode, we'll probably at least have a, an interim ruling from Judge Wood. La- last thing on that: uh, should the court appoint a special master? So that's the, that's like the backup backup relief that that these guys are asking for. So the government in its response on Friday said. There's no need for a special master. We have these procedures in place to protect the privilege, the privilege team versus the you know pro- investigative team. Um, and indeed, they pointed to I think it was the Martha Stewart. No, there was there was one case where Judge Codel might have been Martha Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, Lynn Stewart, not Martha Stewart. Oh, Lynn Stewart, Lynn yeah, Stewart, yeah. right? Um, where Judge Codel actually did a did appoint a special master, and that totally slowed the whole thing down by like months and months and months. Yeah,
0: I could see that, but that you could fix that with resources and pressure. The Lynn Stewart case, that's the material support to terrorism prosecution of a lawyer of of. of of activist attorney Lynn Stewart, who was Blind Sheikh Rahman's attorney and was basically conspiring with him to help him get communications
1: out to, uh, was it Egyptian Islamic group? Something like that, committee. yeah. But so so all this is to say, like, I think Judge Wood will probably try to give them something. I'm yeah. not sure it's going to be a special message. I think at a minimum, copies
0: of the documents yeah. so they can conduct their own. It's uh, their stuff. Why they can't they They can then file copies? and say, these documents here have to be, they have to immediately turn them over to the court and totally. get them back to us and stop referencing them.
1: Um, We'll see what happens. All yeah. right. Um, last note just on Mueller, right? So um, I think that. <laughs> Let's wind now back to 2 o'clock Friday afternoon, <laughs> right, where everyone was sort of expecting that Mueller was going to get fired. NBC News reported that Mueller was telling confidants he was going to be fired. Um, the White House said they were going to have news about Mueller sometime between 2 and 4 p.m. And then it went away. Uh, not Mueller. I'm sorry. Rosenstein. Rosenstein. I, I'm sorry. Oh, important okay. distinction. That makes much more sense. I'm I was sorry. Like, I can't believe I didn't hear it No, no, I'm either. sorry. Rosenstein was telling people he was going to be fired. Um, NBC was – like people reported the White House was going to have Rosenstein news between 2 and 4. So what happened? So the only – Rosenstein news that came out on Friday was a CNN scoop that Rosenstein had, in fact, obtained an ethics opinion from DOJ about whether he needed to recuse from supervising Mueller, and DOJ's top ethics lawyers had said
0: no. Which means that if they were poised to fire him on the grounds he should have recused himself, they lost the ability to easily make that argument. Right. I mean, so now, not that it would have been easy. Now, but-
1: to fire him based on a conflict of interest, they would have to override DOJ's own ethics lawyers. That seems like that's going to be a tough sell. So between that and having to bomb Syria and having to deal with we got distracted. Cohen. <laughs> um, but so with with as as the sort of the axe seemed to be swinging toward Rosenstein, we finally saw a little bit of movement on the hill on the bills to protect Special Counsel Mueller. Um, Chairman Grassley is now apparently a supporter of the bills. He wants to add an amendment. I don't think we've seen the text yet. That would include some kind of reporting. Okay, um, that's harmless. Well. Maybe. I mean, Senator Feinstein objected on the ground that, you know, you could imagine, especially with this Congress, um, an onerous in-progress reporting requirement being used as a way of micromanaging and sidetracking the investigation, right? Might... Yeah, I guess that's right. If you're talking about, about, I thought you meant reporting on the firing
0: of it or removal of it, which I think would
1: be different, right? I mean, so so this is why the devil's in the details. You're talking about reporting to Congress on the actions of the
0: special counsel. Well, that could be that could be a challenge. So
1: listen, I mean, the 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 devil's in the details, right? I I think there are lots of ways in which this could be a friendly amendment. Um, We just have to wait and see, but. If Grassley gets his amendment, I think that means the bill gets out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then that puts a whole lot of pressure on Mitch McConnell, right, who's going to have at least three pretty important members of his caucus pushing for a vote on the floor of the Senate. That'll be interesting. And of course, he'll
0: wait to the last minute to judge the political wins on whether this is going to dis- you know, destroy some other important aspect of his agenda. Because right. if he advances this, the White House is going to go nuclear on yep. him. Yep. Um, I, so- I think it would have to be
1: pretty extreme pressure before he would advance that bill. But I wonder if like how close we seem to get on Friday to Rosenstein being fired might be. I mean, we talked about before how I think the only two things that could be the last turning point before actually firing Mueller would be firing Sessions or firing Rosenstein. If you are the White House and you're and if you're really clever, you
0: repeatedly gin up these "he's about to be fired" stories so people get inured to it, yep. and then they don't get excited. When and it therefore, actually when it actually happens, yep. it suddenly surprises people. Yep. I okay. Um, that's that's quite a bit of news. All right. Tune out if you do not want to hear a quick run of frivolity because it's. Black Panther time. Black Panther time. All right. Wakanda. So you saw it. Uh, probably one of these situations where it's been built up so much it couldn't quite live up to expectations. Or I thought it was. I thought it was
1: very good. I thought it was one of the better you know Marvel comics movies I've seen in a while. I liked the premise. I liked the cast for the most part. You know the one weird thing is right that like T'Challa is not the most compelling. Like he's of all the yeah. of of all the people in the movie, like T'Challa is like the least interesting. Yeah,
0: no, there that's part of what I liked about the movie. Yeah. It, it didn't treat it as this situation where you have this one like central dominant. superhero, right? And right. everyone else is just a bit player who doesn't really do much and don't need to be there. Everyone else is pretty critical, you know, especially his sister yep. uh who was a really fun character. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, the um, but, sister's great. But so were, so were many of the others. I thought all around the the sort of the ensemble approach was appealing. Quite um so I think it's no surp- I've been wanting to say this criticism of it, <laughs> it that I just think is is very commonly expressed. Um, they're they the pitches that Wakanda is such an amazing utopian right. society. What the hell? It's an authoritarian monarchy where the leadership <laughs> can be determined by trial by combat. I mean, that is to me. I know. I know. It's
1: plot. It right? doesn't, so that it doesn't. That doesn't seem. That doesn't seem enlightened to you.
0: Not so much. Not. Only, it's. It's not just that you have a completely sort of. Uh, you know. Uh, absolute monarch-type figure who can step in and on the first day decide, all right, we're going to completely do these crazy things, and everyone's going to go along with it, even though they're personally horrified by what's going right. on. We're going to send
1: missiles to everybody.
0: Yeah, and, and by the way, there, there there does seem to be, you know, there is some analogy here to, to Trump's arrival where <laughs> you've got a society that's got its system for picking people, and lo and behold, somebody got through who comes in, and it's very upsetting to people. And it's kind of interesting that they portray everyone except for the general uh, – Oh no no no! So it's been so long since I've seen it. Now remind me. So the general goes along with it.
1: Yes, she be, goes along with because, it because because it's, she's bound to follow she's, the, she's, the, she's followed the the because the uh, uh, killmonger is the duly anointed. King. He's the
0: commander in chief, right? And, and so the general's like, look, that's the commander in chief. The rules require I obey, and it's only it's only the family right. and the close friends that that um, turn on him. So that I think it's it's interesting to compare that to our current moment in time. But it's just it's, I know I'm I'm sort of choosing low hanging fruit here, but it's. It's crazy, even though it's necessitated by the plot, right. to have a trial-by-combat system, to have this supposedly advanced and enlightened society run by an absolute monarch with complete sway. And then below that level, it appears to be feudal, right? right. So when they need to go to the Jabari for help, right. well, it's the same thing replicated down at their level. Yep. It's, it's one person who rules by, by apparently by dint of physical might and or ancestry, but a combination of both. What could be more regressive than that?
1: Yeah, listen, I think that's a perfectly fair social commentary. I think there's also something to be said for how the only way for Killmonger to achieve his means was through violence, right? That there isn't even like the discussion of using our sophisticated technology and our, you know, we know more than you do about everything as a way of actually asserting moral superiority as opposed to- Wakanda's soft power. Right, as opposed, right, Wakanda's soft power as opposed to Wakanda's hard power, right? Like, listen, I'm not saying it was perfect. Oh, I know, I know, I know you're not disagreeing on this. Let's see, what else can we pick at?
0: Um, I didn't like the whole again necessitated by plot, but this whole hoarding of knowledge—it's right. not just that they're hoarding the vibranium. They apparently have outdone big pharma in its patent-controlled approach to you know not necessarily making everybody able to access certain certain uh, <laughs> pharmaceutical wonders. At least not if you can't afford it. Here, they're not even the world doesn't even know about the amazing medical advances yeah. they've got. That's a hell of a thing to to keep to yourself. So,
1: I mean, one way to look at the movie is as an indictment of secrecy. It uh, could be, yeah, right. You got to be an open society, and then, that, that, of course, that's how it kind of resolves, right? Yeah. Well, to a point. I mean, right. Yeah. The the all we know at the end is that they're establishing the first Wakandan cultural mission in in Oakland. Yeah, which, like, of all the places. Right. Like, what is what is that? So, well, that's a black. I mean, that's a Black Panther homage. Oh, sure. Right. I uh, mean, that's yeah, just that's right. just you know the they're black not Panther. actually
0: trying to say anything about political theory at that point. No. Okay, other uh, Easter egg type things. Uh, the casino scene in South Korea. <laughs> so, like the set from Skyfall right. was just like there. Yeah, and they were like, you know what? That's a cool set. Let's right. use the same was, set. I was like, this looks familiar. <laughs> it looks really familiar. Right, da-
1: right down to the right down to the fight scene. So I haven't actually done a side by side comparison. See, like, is it the same? It sure. I mean, listen, I I haven't either. But I mean, what there there's the there's the square yeah. like two layer square balcony right There's So there. I have to
0: assume there must be maybe there's
1: some iconic you know. Casino someplace like that that's all based on so, such and say, such. so in, in skyfall right it's um is it skyfall or is it specter i guess it's skyfall right in i think Sky- it's skyfall, in skyfall sure. it's macau so i wonder if that's like some fancy casino in macau it's easy to
0: imagine that, in fact that is and by the way if anybody out there knows the answer to that tell us and if anybody wants to fly me and steve out there to do a side visit we're happy to we're happy, we're happy to, to we're, we're happy to you know uh, uh sponsor
1: it and tout it on the on the podcast um any other easter eggs or other things that jumped out at you I just, I, I, I just, I, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think it's another one of those movies where the more you think about it, the less convincing it is, but where it's very pretty. So yeah. it's like, it's like my critique of most of the recent Star Trek movies and Star Wars movies. Yeah. Um, although pretty soon we have Solo. Oh, I actually think based on the trailers, it's going to be good. So I, you know, this is a question, right? Like, so, um, are these Star Wars spin-off movies all going to be in different genres, right? So Rogue One was a war movie, yep. right? Um. From the trailers, Is it um, western. it looks like a, Solo looks like a Western.
0: I think that would actually make sense. Well, there, there's definitely one scene, right, where he's, uh, he's about yeah. to draw on somebody, yeah, yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, um, that's good. And says, "I've got a good feeling about this." It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's a reason. There's gonna be a reason why he no longer
1: says that. Yes, <laughs> and, and and I think the movie's gonna fill that. All right, so you got to go teach. Uh, I do. So really quickly, the Mets—they're twelve and 12 two. Twelve and two. Um, so I'm gonna be
0: curious to see when Zach Wheeler pitches again because he delivered as you predicted. As I predicted, he was great in his first
1: start. Um, I actually just added him to my fantasy
0: team so I'm hoping that wasn't a now, flash. D- now we did have
1: a run of typically Mets bad luck with our catchers.
0: Yeah, you can't seem to keep one there. But That's the
1: reality a- is actually I think the one position where the Mets could afford that exact thing to happen yeah. was catcher. Because where they were was, was right. pretty much at replacement, replacement level. Yeah. And so, you know, between it's a good chance to see if Thomas Nito could actually exactly. play this may in the majors could turn well. And Lobatone's a perfectly serviceable defensive catcher. Who actually is hitting a little. So, I, listen, I don't think the. It's <laughs> like we go on to this. Jerry Saville is not going to finish with 85 saves. <laughs> the Mets are not going to win 146 games. Like, it's this is not, this will not hold. Prediction time how many wins? Na- I think. 94? I, I think they are an 87 or 88 win team. And the only question is whether, you know, the Nationals turn it around because they're not playing well right now to the point where 87 or 88 wins is or isn't good enough for the division title versus the first wild card.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of this will t- turn on... The total number of wins depends on the
1: strength of that division. Yeah. And if,
0: if, if injuries take their toll and the competition gets weak, they can get Listen, to the 90s. If the, if, the,
1: if the pitching holds up, right, and if, and if we're able to sort of run over the, the weaker teams of the NLEs like we have so far, the yeah. Marlins, and yeah. Yeah. I guess the Phillies, although they've uh, won the six... Look, of, the Phillies look pretty good. Yeah, Youth I mean, movement. that's an interesting question. But yeah. I, I, you know, they don't feel like... Like a, a like a ninety five or hundred win team. No, no, to no. It, but it, that'd be a little uh, unbridled enthusiasm. At but this point but in the listen, season. since the since the advent of the second wild card, I don't think there has been a National League team that has won eighty five games and not made. Oh it to yeah, the I think
0: it, I, they should this team's good enough with that kind
1: of pitching they certainly should be in the playoffs 85-90 to 90 wins depending on how other things develop your mileage may vary depending on injuries indeed alright so that's it for our special Monday edition um, I, I don't speaking of predictions Think I'm, we'll not, I'm not that confident that we're going to get to the weekend without <laughs> needing episode 70 that is a definite possibility but for now let's let everybody go about their days so um, follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney on Twitter follow me at Steve underscore Vladek the podcast is at NSL podcast uh, if you're a new listener, Listener, welcome. I can't believe you stayed this long. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell your lawyer. Tell your lawyer's lawyer. But make sure you understand that that's not protected by the attorney-client privilege. Stay safe out there. Adios.